Okay, John chapter 17, reading from verse 1, and it, uh, it's entitled in the NIV, Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all. The eternal life to all those who've given him, who you've given him. Now this eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world begun. And Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave, gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you have given me, me that comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be as one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except, except the one doomed to destruction that scripture will be, will be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of, joy, of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may, be tr they may too be truly sanctified. Jesus prays for the believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may also, they, may also be in, in us, so that the, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may know, they may, be, may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I've loved them even, even, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me, given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. I want you to give them the glory you've given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have, you have for, me, for, for me may be in them and that I myself may also be in them. Let's just pray for Nick as he comes to uh, share with this reading. 
Lord, we do thank you that you did send Jesus, that, that same Jesus that helped you create the world and was, the, as, was there from the very, very beginning. I just thank you that you sent, that to, um, sent him to this earth to be with us as an example. I pray now for Nick as he comes to uh, share this passage with us. I just pray for you to give him words, Lord, uh, that you want us to hear, for uh, you to give him the ideas that you want us to, to, to know about. So uh, be with Nick and help us hear you through him this morning. Amen. Thanks, Bill. I feel my job, I know I've said this before, but I feel my job is sometimes like um, that of a kind of mother penguin or a kind of seabird, um, and I go off in the week and I go off um, hunting for food. I go on a long journey, um, and I go on a long journey into the Word and into prayer and into thought and, and wrestling with Scripture. Um, and come back and I regurgitate it for you in digestible form. Um, there's a picture that won't leave your minds easily. And I feel like today, you know, my, my hunting's been not that good. You feel like I've caught maybe just one big fish and I haven't managed to digest it. And then all that happens is I go, and you get it, you know, and it lands on your plate and you think, well, what do I do with that? So that's my way of apologising. Um, I don't feel like I've got to grips with this text. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's not even an easy text to read. You feel like it ought to be, but it isn't. Um, it's just not as easy as you think it might be. And it's full of words which sort of have... which you think have meaning, like glory... And yet, as you read them through, Jesus is using it in different ways. And you think, I don't really know, I think I know what this, you know, I thought I knew what this word meant when we started, but, but by the end you think, I'm not sure I know what this word means. Uh, this word means. And the same with Jesus says, you know, I did these things in my, my name and God did these things by his name. And it's not straightforward text. So I apologize if not, not as clear as it might be. But I want to look at it this way. I want to suggest there are two Lord's prayers in the Bible. You know the Lord's prayer in, in Matthew 6. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, and so on. That's the prayer Jesus asks us to pray when his followers said, how, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. That's what Jesus said. Uh, this is the prayer that the Lord himself prays. Um, and that's an interesting question then. How much do you reckon will be the same? How much do you reckon will be different? Um, and what are the reasons why it might be the same? Because surely Jesus will have some of the same prayer aims, but why might it be different? Does Jesus pray in a different way? Does Jesus have different point from which he can pray to which we can pray? But let's ask another question as we start. What has caused him to pray? at this point in time. Why does Jesus pray here? And the answer is that his hour has come. That's the first thing he says, the hour has come. So all through these chapters that we've looked at in recent weeks, from, from John 12, uh, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, um, <clears throat> as soon as he, <coughs> excuse me, get into John 13, they go into the upper room. All these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, are about Jesus preparing um, his followers for the time he's not going to be there. 
Because he knows his hour is coming and that hour is, is the hour of crucifixion. It's the hour of his death. And so he prays. And I think this is, this is not Gethsemane because that doesn't come until at the, at the end. It doesn't cross the valley until the beginning of, of John 18. But Jesus prays at this point and he presumably prays out, out loud so at least some of them can hear and it can be recorded. So this prayer is part of the equipping um, that Jesus wants his disciples and the disciples that will come after his disciples to have. So he's been talking about his hour coming since um, the wedding in Cana back in chapter 2. Do you remember that story? He tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. And he says that the same in chapters 7 and chapters 8. But now, as we say, since he's come into Jerusalem, he says that his hour has come. Do you remember when he washed the disciples' feet? We're told because he knows that his time has come, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It is glory hour. Glory hour has come. And Jesus prays for himself, as you've seen. Prays for his followers. And he prays for those who will believe the message through his followers. And if those three prayers are answered, there will be an enduring church throughout the generations. So let's look at those uh, aspects of prayer. Jesus prays for himself in, in that first part. He, he addresses God as uh, Father, and he prays for glory. One writer says, amazingly, this is the only time in all the Bible that we get a glimpse into the prolonged prayer of one person of the Trinity to another. So here is the Jesus the Son praying to his Father. What could be more poignant than a father-son collaboration? Just have to remember that there is one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they are persons. And it's just an incredibly poignant thing, isn't it? That, that Father and, and Son uh, are, are working this thing together, one from heaven and one on the earth, working um, to the same purpose. What could be more touching than, the, than each of them working for the other's glory? This is the God we know. This is the God we believe in. Jesus says, glorify your son that your son might glorify you. What an amazing thing, father and son working together, and we get a little glimpse into it today. So we say, our father in heaven. Okay, so there's two prayers, two Lord's prayers, they start in the same way. We can say our father in heaven because, Hebrews 2, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's an amazing thing too, isn't it? That Jesus looks at you, and he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister because of the cross because of what he's going to do in, in a moment in this text he will call you brother call you sister and so you can go to God and call him father our father in heaven it's never going to be quite the same as Jesus relationship to the father is it because they are one being and yet, but they are two persons, father and son. And, and Jesus says, may they be one as we are one. 
may we be one in the same way that Father and Son are one. That's quite a prayer. I in them and you in me. So the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Father and the Son are in you and in me. And out of that then there should be a, a, a massive oneness. A massive organic oneness of Father and Son in each of us and, and therefore each of us united as one. So Jesus asks then to his, goes to his Father and he says, glorify me. And it's a strange thing for him to say, but I think in the context what he's trying to say is don't let me be put to shame by bringing you dishonour. In other words, my Father, will you strengthen me um, as I go to the cross? And that's what he prays in a sense in, in, in Gethsemane. And the motivation though, why does he want his Father to give him strength going forward? It's so that he can bring glory back to the Father. So in the midst of all of this, the cross is the place of glory. The cross is the glory of our faith. It's the measure of the self-giving nature of God. It's the glory of our faith. That's why it's there. Don't have to have signs and symbols, but the symbol that we have chosen to use is a cross, an empty cross. And that's why it's there, because it's, because it's the measure of, the, of our God who gives himself. The Father, you know this, but hear it, the Father gives his son. He gives his only son up to death. The cross is our glory because it's the measure of the costly love of God. Shown by the Father, but shown by the Son. He's obedient to his Father to the point of becoming human, to the point of dying a human death and going to a cross. The cross is our glory because it's a demonstration that love for others is in the very nature of God. Son longs to glorify the Father. The Father longs to glorify the Son. They are instinctively loving and seeking the glory of others. It is in their nature. So what do we pray? Hallowed be your name. May your name be considered holy and glorious. And then Jesus prays about eternal life for his followers. And what does he say eternal life is? If you remember that Don Carson says the, the essence of eternal life is about acceptance with God. And maybe you would have questioned that at the time, but look at what Jesus says here. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not about duration of life. It is about quality of life. It is about a relationship. It's about knowing the Father as the only true God, and it is about recognizing and knowing Jesus as the one sent by God. Those are the qualifications for entry into the relationship. Seeing Jesus as God, trusting him, knowing the Father as the only true 
God. Those are the qualifications in for entry. But they're also the joy, they're the reality of the relationship. That you know God. And you know Christ. And then Jesus prays for glory again. But I think in a different sense. Verse 5. Now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the creation of the world. In other words, Jesus says, can I come back now? <laughs> At one level. Can I, can I return to you? Can I return to that glory that I had on the far side of the cross? And God says, yes, because Jesus does what he's, he's fully obedient. He goes to death. But in that death, then he brings along with him many sons and daughters to glory. It says it in the song, but it says it in Hebrews 2. Before he returns to glory, he opens the door through the cross for a whole load of others to, to enter with him. So that's Jesus' prayer for, him, for himself. Jesus' prayer prays for his disciples is it, interesting. It's very John. I should say this, and I think um, if you compare this with kind of like one John, where, and, and it's notable, I think, that, let me put it like this, John has, has put Jesus' words in, in his words. And that's okay. Okay, we don't expect John to have necessarily um, remembered verbatim what Jesus has said. It's, it, it's very John. That struck me in the last couple of days. But nevertheless, we, we trust. And it's, it is an act of faith that God has superintended the recording of his word to be what he wanted it to be. But it is nevertheless true. Nevertheless, God's word. And it is true. But look what Jesus says has happened so far. Because he sort of gives God a little recap in his prayer. He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. This is going to upset you. Um, so the, the first, Jesus says, of the people who have come to him. And he's talking about his his followers, they were yours. The first thing happened away was that they were the fathers. They belonged to the Father. You gave them to me. The second thing that happened, the Father gave them to the Son. Now they know everything you've given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. Jesus revealed the Father to them, number three. He gave them the words he had been given by the Father, number four. The people obeyed them, number five. And so, in verse 8, they knew with certainty, 6, that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. That's how people um, come to Christ, is it? Yes, I think it is. They belong to the Father. Father gives them to the Son. Jesus reveals the Father to them. He gives them um, the words, which are now in, in Scripture. The people obey them. In other words, they believe the gospel. They trusted this good news. Jesus is God, is God's son, and he has died in their place. That he's risen again, and that he will give them forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. And they believed it, and they then had assurance that Jesus was the son sent by the Father. We pray, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. That's what this means, isn't it? So I think it's been interesting. I've been leading one of the home groups over this last term. It's been interesting how often predestination has come up. It's kind of um, 
Uh, and that's not surprising because it is everywhere in John's Gospel. It's not an invention of Paul. Some people would like to claim it, it's here in John. And it's an unresolved question for many. Why do we struggle? And what I'd like you to do is to go away and be honest. If you struggle with predestination, why do I, why do I struggle with this? And I would like to know. Like you did tell me, and just be really, but really, really honest with yourself. Is it is it because it, it's a, it's intellectual struggle? I'm trying to reconcile two ideas, and I can't reconcile them. Um, is it a struggle if we're really honest because it takes control out of our hands? So is it a kind of control issue, um, or, or or is it something else? Or is it if you're really honest, you don't like what it reveals about God. Or some other reason. And you can text me that. I'm really happy for you to text me that, okay? Um, just keep it short, please. I'm a very simple uh, brain. Um, but, but if you want to be really honest and say, I struggle with it for this reason, then, then that would really help for me. Because we're not going to resolve it today, except to recognize that it's very clearly there. God predestines some. They are the Lord's. I think, yes, we struggle with it intellectually because there's going to be an element of mystery. We have to accept in Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign. If God is not absolutely sovereign, he is the God who says, I make known the end from the beginning. If you don't have that, you don't really have anything. If God is not sovereign, he can't answer prayer. He can't guarantee to hold on to you uh, until Christ comes. In fact, you can't guarantee any. If God is not sovereign, he, he cannot guarantee you anything. So you have to accept that God is, is sovereign. And yet we have to accept that human beings are absolutely responsible and accountable before God. We don't like systems we can't get our heads around. At least we say that. Now, having said that, how many of you, hands up, know how an internal combustion engines work? There will be a handful. Um, how many of you know how internet protocols work? Oh, got one. Okay, but the rest of you, you're very happy to, to, to Google stuff and you don't need to know. We say that we, well, you know, this is a system, I can't get my head around it. And maybe that's true. But maybe like the internet, you, can, you, you still use the fruit of it. And the fruit is, yes, we are responsible. We have what one writer calls, I think it was Paul Helm, the dignity of causality. We make real choices and they make real differences. But we have, I think, as Christians, the best of both. Yes, we have this dignity of causality, but we are reassured that God is in control. We have to accept that there is a view from below which is the people are responsible, and we need to choose, and you need to choose Christ if you haven't done this morning and, and you want eternal life. Okay? Uh, and that is clear. But we get a view from above in, in Scripture, which is revealed to us that our God is in control. Therefore, our salvation does not depend on our moral effort from here on in. doesn't mean you don't have to walk with the Lord, but it doesn't depend on it. 
and you were assured that God is in control and he has your life in his hands, neither of which you can have if God is not sovereign. I think the other reason we struggle is probably because we want to remain in control. We don't really like, certainly don't like the idea of being powerless. It's not a nice place to be, is it? But you were powerless to save yourself. And God has nevertheless stepped down and rescued you and called you into his kingdom. And I think we just have not really wrestled down it. And so I think we'll have to do this at some point. The predicament that the non-Christian is in, that we were once in before we were in Christ. Before you were in Christ, did you have free will? The answer is, sort of. You only had the freedom to do what your heart decided to do. Before you were a Christian, your heart didn't turn to Christ and it never was going to turn to Christ. Unless God turned it for you. I found, a, uh, this is a quote from Martin Luther. This is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, be they never so small, denies Christ. I'll say that again. This is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain, he that will carry on saying that a man's free will or a woman's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, in other words, do anything spiritually good, be they ever so small, denies Christ. Believe that to be true. You were not able to do any spiritual good before Christ came into your life. And even now, what did we see? Um, John 15, what did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Before God intervenes, we have limited free will. We have free will to do what our hearts desire, but our hearts desire is not to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and is not to love our neighbor as ourselves. So before Christ, we do nothing of spiritual value until God intervenes, changes our hearts, turns them to him. And now as Christians, we can glorify God. We can do things with spiritual good, but only because... Spirit of God works in us. Without me, you can do nothing. So what does Jesus pray for his followers? He says, protect them from the evil one as I have protected them. So we pray, Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus prays, keep them one, as Father and Son are one. So we pray, forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our, our debtors. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus says, as I have sanctified myself. We pray, your will be done. Then Jesus says, give them joy, 
from my joy. And then he says, they will be hated as I've been hated. But he says, then I have sent them as you have sent me. Well, let's turn those backwards and you'll find they all flow out from the fact that we, like Christ, have been sent. So the Father sends the Son to go and reveal him. So we are sent, like Jesus, to reveal Jesus. We will be hated for that, like Jesus. We are to have joy, like Jesus. We are to sanctify ourselves, like Jesus. We are to be one, like Jesus and his Father. And then we will be protected by the Father, but like Jesus did for his followers when he was on earth. If we can get our heads around those truths, if that prayer is answered, then there will be a healthy church and church will go on. Because it will be a missionary church, it will have a sense of being, it's been sent. It's a church that's ready to be reviled. In other words, it's not a fearful and looking over its shoulder church. It'll be a church that draws on, draws on joy and, and, uh, and, and loves Jesus. It's a church that will be committed to, to being sanctified by Scripture. In other words, committed to Scripture making an actual real change in our lives. It'll be a, uh, a church that is radically one across all the natural barriers. Say natural, but they're unnatural in a sense. It'll be a church then that's protected by its Father. Then there will be church that does something that goes forward in which Christ dwells, which Christ works. <clears throat> Briefly, does that mean that Christian churches should set aside their differences and work together? Yes, but, is the answer. So I have to say, with agreement of elders, a year or, or so ago, I let churches together in Staines and Laidham know that we were formally withdrawing because we wanted stronger partnership. And I made that very clear. We wanted better partnership. And I suggested that we gather together on an agreed basis of faith. So I was essentially trying to tempt them all to jump ship and do something better. Um, sadly, it, they've sort of gone the other way and just um, widened the doors um, and drawn in other churches. It, it is not logical to gather together across, uh, across fundamental differences. Things like how we view scripture, how we think you get right with God. If one church thinks you get right with God by your own moral effort, and we think you get right with God by grace, it's too fundamental a difference to join over. You cannot paper over those cracks, and what you get is a kind of forced, but unreal and never really consummated unity cannot have unity without truth you end up with an unreal ineffective coalition it's like trying to put pieces together from different jigsaws but in contrast we have a very easy unity with all saints in Leyland which is an Anglican church Ashford Cong and, and other churches which believe the same fundamentals there will be differences but there must be unity within the church. 
must be unity within our church across young and old, across rich and poor, across nationalities, across different types of work. And that's why maybe this morning you discovered there are people whose names you don't know. That's got to be surely your first step. Has it not? Go and, uh, go and ask some people what their names are, who, who you don't know. I thought you were going to come and help me out, Roderick. <laughs> thought it was a word of knowledge coming there. But Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Paul says to them, look, if you've, if you've got any, uh, any encouragement from being in church, if you've got any comfort from his love, if he's giving you anything at all, if you've got any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any sense that the spirit makes you a body, if any tenderness and compassion, if any inkling of you quite like these people, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Paul says to them, and would say the same to us, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition, not trying to promote ourselves, or vain conceit, we're not trying to do stuff because we love ourselves. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves and... Crucially, not looking to your own interests. But each of you to the interests of others. If it needed to look like youth church, then we decide it should look like youth church. If we decide it needs to look like church full of poor people, then we do it in a way that doesn't alienate poor people But if those things are together that Jesus prays for, then there will be church. There will be healthy church. There will be growing church. And then Jesus prays for, for all believers, and I'm not really going to spend any time on that. <clears throat> but interestingly, he prays for, that's the next one. He prays for continued unity. Because unity, as he says there, uh, is the evidence that Christ is in it. If there's continued unity, then there's continued mission. If there's continued mission, then there is continued revelation by Jesus. If any generation, they always say that the church is one generation away from collapsing, don't they? And it's, and it's true, in a sense. If any generation gives up on, on those values that Jesus prays for his disciples, um, then it's potentially not there in the next generation. So I think Jesus essentially prays the same thing for the next, for the generation but one. He, he's looking, interestingly, isn't it? Jesus is looking, he, uh, he's prayed for himself because he knows the things he's got to do. He, he kind of prays for the disciples, let's say that's us, um, but he's praying, in, he's praying into the next generation. He, he's looking one generation down the line. Um, and we have to do that as well, I think. That's why we're praying to double in size. It's, it's really, it's another way of saying we're praying for the next generation of church. You know, if we're not doing that, it, it, it won't be there. If that's what Jesus does, that's what we have to do. And so I'm going to end in prayer. And what we'll do, if we come to the next slide, oh, yeah, I did put it on the slide.
we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. I think the only one of those that we, that we haven't prayed is give us today your daily bread. Um, I think that's the only one that hasn't come into that. The one at the bottom, um, there's, uh, actually I actually hadn't put it on the slide. I think sometime later somebody added, because it's only in the late texts of Matthew, somebody ended it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Uh, I think that probably got added in. We can pray it anyway. Um, but it sounds a bit like John, doesn't it? Um, maybe somebody influenced by John added that in later on. But let's pray together, but slowly and steadily. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.